Now for a short time seeking God's help we may turn to the portion of scripture which we read the gospel of Christ according to John and the <coughs> third chapter and we may read again those well-known words of verse 16 the gospel of Christ according to John chapter 3 and verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now the words of our text form probably the best known verse in the whole of New Testament scripture. Some writers ascribe them to the writer John himself. And they say that what we have here is an explanation and a clarification of what Jesus has been saying in the earlier verses of this chapter in his discourse to Nicodemus. And uh, those commentators that take this view base their argument upon the words, his only begotten son, because they say that it is only John of all the other New Testament writers, of all the New Testament writers, that uses this term, his only begotten son. And so they say, these words must be the words of John himself, of the writer. On the other hand, there are other commentators who see these words as not the words of John, but as the words of Jesus himself. And they say that what we are here is a continuation of the discourse of our Lord to Nicodemus. And uh, these people that take this view base their argument upon verses 14 and 15 because it is clear that verses 14 and 15 are almost certainly the words of the Lord himself speaking. In verse 14 we have the term the Son of Man and we know that just as John is the only writer to use the term the, his only begotten Son so Jesus himself is the only one that speaks of himself as the Son of Man. Now that expression, the Son of Man, is given to us in verse 14. And verses 14 and 15 very clearly go together. So people argue that as verses 14 and 15 are almost certainly the words of Jesus, so verse 16 is a re-emphasis of those verses, of what you have in those verses in our Lord's discourse to Nicodemus. But really, whatever view you take, whether you look on these words as the words of the writer John himself, or whether you see them as the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, at the end of the day it makes very little difference, because these words are the words of Scripture. And all Scripture, whether, we have the, whether it's the words of Jesus or the words of John or of Paul or whoever, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And these words are the words of scripture and therefore they're for our own learning and edification. Now looking at this very rich and very precious verse before us, there are three thoughts that I would like to center upon. First of all, I would like to look at God's love with respect to its object. God so loved the world. And then secondly, God's love with respect to the gift that it provided. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
And then thirdly, God's love with respect to the result. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. <clears throat> now it's clear that in this verse, God's love is the great theme. God's love is the core, it's the very heart of all that this verse tells us. And if we were asked to sum up this verse in just two words, I don't think we could sum it up any better than in the two words, God loved. Because these two words tell us just about all that this verse says, God loved. <clears throat> now at the very outset of looking at, these verses, at, the, at this verse, it must be stated that the love of God that's referred to here is not the love of the Godhead. It's not the love of the triune God, but it's the love of God the Father in particular. Now, that's quite an obvious statement, but it's necessary to make this point because there are a lot of people who tend to regard the Lord Jesus Christ as the font of love. And they tend to regard the Father on the other hand as a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God of anger. And the picture that so many people have in their minds is of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world and dying in order to appease the Father. And the Father uh, taking cognizance of what the Son has done and on the basis of what the Son has done, forgiving those that put their trust in the Son almost grudgingly. This is the view that very many people have of God the Father. And yet, no view could be further from the truth. Because this, this verse, among other verses, make it very clear that the love of God originated in the Father himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's clear that the Father is referred to here because there is only one Father and there is only one Son. Now, notice it says here that God loved the world. It doesn't say that God loves the world. You see, it's not a case of God the Father taking notice at a certain point of, his, at his, of history of what the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, has done. God loved the world. It's a past tense that's, that's used here. And this suggests that God began living, loving the world in a point in history far back from the time of Calvary. Indeed, if we were to ask when did the love of God the Father begin, we can only answer it began in the eternal ages. You remember what we're told in the 31st chapter of, of Jeremiah. God says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. The love of the Father is an everlasting love. It goes back into eternity. And we know that we cannot get behind in such a time as that because it's a point before time itself began. Well then, God so loved the world. But it's only when we look at the object of God's love that we begin to realize 
the greatness of this love. God so loved the world. Now like so many words in scripture, the, this word has been the object of misunderstanding by a great deal of people. There have been those who have looked at this word world and they've understood it in the quantitative sense. And what they argue is this, that the writer John or whoever is speaking here is saying that God loved the whole world, that God loved everybody, that God loved all men. And from such a belief they draw the conclusion that the Lord Jesus Christ must have died for everyone without exception. And so they land in the doctrine of universal atonement. And from there they land in the doctrine of Arminianism. They come to the conclusion that God has done his part and now it's left up to man. And man has the power in himself to do his part. And of course we know that such a belief is completely erroneous. Now the common reformed argument to this is that this term, the world, does not mean the world in a quantitative sense, but rather in a qualitative sense. That what's meant here by the world is the world in all its corruption, in all its sinfulness, in all its ungodliness. And that the emphasis here is this, that God loved such a place as this that we live in, such an ungodly place, such an ungodly people. God so loved the world. Now, basically, this argument is the correct argument. And yet, it does leave one question unanswered. And the question is this, why did the writer then use the term world at all? Why did John or Jesus not simply say, God loved ungodly, wicked man to such an extent that he gave his only begotten son? Why use the term world at all here? Well, I believe that the word world is used here very deliberately because it's used in the sense of the fact that God loved not the Jewish people only, that God's love was not confined to the Jews alone. I believe that this word world should be understood here in the same sense that, is, that it is to be understood in the Great Commission, where we're told Jesus tells his disciples, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. I believe here we have an early hint, and if Jesus is speaking, it's a hint to Nicodemus, that great rabbi, that great Jewish teacher, a hint that the gospel was going to go out beyond the pale of the Jewish nation, even to the Gentile nation itself. And after all, we have another hint in the following chapter, in the fourth chapter of John. You remember how Jesus there meets the woman of Samaria at the well. And you remember how the woman is so ready to enter into an argument with Jesus. And she points to the fact that her people worship in this mountain in Samaria. But Jesus corrects her and he tells her that the Jews worship at Jerusalem. And he tells her that they did not know whom they worshipped. But then he goes on and he says that the, the time is coming, the hour is coming and now is, when all who worship the Father 
should worship neither in Jerusalem nor in this mountain, but the emphasis was to be put on worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. He was making the point to the woman of Samaria that the time was coming when no longer had people to worship God simply in the one place in Jerusalem, in this one point on earth, but that throughout the whole world people could worship God wherever they were placed and that God would listen to them if their worship was in spirit and in truth. Well then, it was to a world of Gentiles as well as to a world of Jews that God sent his Son, that God loved, God so loved the world. But what exactly does it mean? God loved the world. Well, it's interesting that in the Greek language there are no less than four words for love. One word has to do with friendship, and it's probably the equivalent of our own word for friendship. Another word has to do with the love within families, the love between parents and children, and children and parents, the love between sisters and brothers, and brothers and sisters. A third word has, a word has to do with marital love, the love between husband and wife and wife and husband. Now, the Gospel writers were familiar with all these three words, and yet, wherever in the New Testament we find the writers speaking of the love of God to sinners, <clears throat> although they were familiar with all these words, they do not use any of the three of them. Instead, they use another word, the word agape. And this word, we're told, is a word that is without history, an empty word, a word that until that time was hardly ever used. But this special word, this word that is altogether unique, is the word that is used throughout the New Testament when it speaks of God's love to sinners. Why is it that such a special word is used? Well, just for this reason. Because there is reason for every other kind of love that's been spoken of. You see, there's reason for friendship. When we see people that are of similar beliefs and similar temperaments and uh, similar natures to ourselves, we become friendly towards them. And there's a reason for this friendship, this friendliness. Again, there's a reason for the love that exists within families. There's a reason for parents loving their children. There's a reason for brothers loving their, loving their sisters and sisters loving their brothers. The reason is because they are related. There, there's the blood connection between the individuals in the family. Again, there's reason for the love that exists between husband and wife and wife and husband. There's physical attraction and so on. But when we come to the love of God to sinners, we come to a love for which there is absolutely no reason, a love that we cannot explain because there is no reason, at least any reason that we can find. And so it's necessary when New Testament writers spoke of the love of God to sinners, 
It was necessary that they use this special love. Now, I believe that we don't fully appreciate this simply because of sin that dwells in each one of us. You see, if we could see ourselves for what we really were, if we could see the ugliness of sin in ourselves, if we could see the evil and the ungodliness of our own hearts, we would see that there is nothing within us to attract us to God. Because God, on the other hand, is holy. God is beautiful. God is perfect. God is everything that's to be desired. He's the very opposite of what we are. And therefore, as far as we can gauge, there is no reason whatever why God should love us. God so loved the world. But it's only when we come to the gift that God provided that we begin to grasp something of the greatness of this love. You see, it's a great thing that God should love the world at all. It's a greater thing still that God should do anything about this, that God should act on behalf of man and for man. But when we consider what God did for man, then we enter into an area that's altogether beyond our understanding, an area into which the very angels of heaven desire to look unto. God gave his only begotten Son. Now it's a sheer extravagance of God's gift that's to be noted here. The fact that absolutely no cost whatever was spared. God so loved the world that he gave his Son, literally he gave his Son, the only begotten. Now when we consider what God has done in giving his Son, there are two factors to be borne in mind. The first factor is this, that God loved his Son. And the second factor is this, that God knew all that was involved in the giving of his Son. A parallel has often been drawn of the giving of the Son by the Father and the proposed offering of Isaac by Abraham on Mount Moriah. And we cannot deny that there are similarities. When we look at that account given to us in Genesis chapter 22, you remember how Abraham was told, Take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and go offer him as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains. Now when we look at that verse, we see that almost every word in it was, must have been like a knife in the very heart of Abraham as he was told to go and to sacrifice his son Isaac. Go and take thy son whom thou lovest and go offer him as a burnt offering. Every word must have gone into Abraham's heart like a knife as he was told to sacrifice the son, the only son he had, the son whom he loved. And as God was testing Abraham, there was no, there's no doubt but that every word was calculated to strike at his heart and to strike at him in such a way as to bring anguish and pain to Abraham. There are similarities. And yet, while there are similarities, there are also many dissimilarities here. 
He said the love of Abraham is only a very faint picture of the love of God for his son. Because the love of Abraham for Isaac was a temporal love. You see, when Abraham went to offer up Isaac, Isaac was still a comparatively young man. It was only a few years before this that Isaac cheered up his father in his old age as he was born uh, to into the family. But when we consider the difference between Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ, there is surely no comparison. Isaac was a man of only a few years, but Christ had existed in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. There was never a point in which the Lord Jesus Christ was not. He was there from all eternity. We have this brought out so clearly in, in the book of Proverbs, in the 8th chapter, where we find Christ spoken of, speaking as the eternal wisdom. And uh, he tells us, speaking there, that uh, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, wherever the earth was. And we find as that chapter goes on, a description of the creation of the world. And throughout the creation, Christ is reminding us, in the language of eternal wisdom, that as the world was being created, he was there. And he goes on, and he tells us in verse 29, when he gave to the sea his decree, that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was, I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The point that's been made is this, that before anything was that we see around us, before the worlds were created at all, Christ was there. There was never a time when Christ was not there, for he was and he is the eternal Son of God. But then there are those who argue, yes, they say that may be so, but God surely, because of who he is, cannot suffer. And therefore, it was no sacrifice on the part of God to give his son in the way that Abraham gave his son Isaac. Now it's true that God is altogether different from what we are. And when we talk about the Most High God, we must talk with great carefulness. But yet, the fact of the matter is that throughout Scripture, God is presented to us as a God who is passionate, a God who can be jealous, a God who can be grieved, a God who can be angry, and a God who can be provoked. And all these, these characteristics of God remind us that we ourselves were made in the image of God. Now it's true that we have to a large extent lost this image. And we cannot compare our grief, we cannot compare our jealousy, we cannot compare our anger and our being provoked to those characteristics in God. Because in every one of those uh, characteristics, in every one of those passions with ourselves there is sin, and there is no sin in God. And yet, what I'm trying to say is this, can we say that God gave his son 
and that it meant absolutely nothing to him giving him? Can we say that there was no passion with God? Can we say there was no feelings with God when he gave his only begotten son? Well, he gave his only begotten son. And remember, he was his beloved son from all eternity. He said, on two occasions, this is my beloved son. And he did not just become his beloved son at a point in time. He was always his beloved son. He was his beloved son in a unique way. Because there was never a time when this son ever grieved or ever hurt his father. There was always perfect love, pure love, existing between the, these two persons, between the father and between the son. It was a love without intermission. It was a love without interruption. But then we notice again that, that God knew all that Calvary would involve. Now this was something that Abraham did not know when he was told to offer up his son Isaac. Abraham hoped perhaps that there would be intervention. He hoped that at the last moment God would speak from heaven and tell him that this sacrifice was not necessary, that he did not have to offer his son. And we know that this is in fact what did happen. But again, if, if Abraham had to go through with it, if Abraham had to kill his son Isaac, he knew that it would be a relatively quick death. And that in a few moments it would all be over. And again, Abraham knew, we're told on the basis of, of the 11th chapter to the Hebrews, that even if he had to put his son Isaac to death, he believed that God was able to raise him up again from the dead. But oh, with God it was so different. Oh yes, God knew that his son would rise again from the dead. All this was known to him. But he also knew that all, he knew of all that would be involved in the meantime. He knew that he would have to be born into this world of sin and darkness. He knew that he would have to live <clears throat> for over 30 years, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Above all, he knew what, was, what would be involved in his final days on earth. He knew that all his friends would at last forsake him. He knew that the prince of this world would assault him and would vex him. And above all, he knew that he himself, as his beloved father, would have to hide his face from him. And that Christ would have to cry out to him as one who at last even lost his own identity. When he could say, no longer my father, but my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God knew all this and he knew it in every precise detail. Can we really say that with all this knowledge that God had, that God could look forward to all this that had to take place in the person of his dear son? And can we say that God was totally unmoved by all this? Surely such a picture is far from the picture of God as the God of love as we know he is. Rather, it's a picture of one who is cruel, cold and capricious. Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, just as there are those <clears throat> who would minimize the cost of 
the giving of his son so there are those who would who would argue that Calvary was not really necessary anyway that Calvary was something optional and that God if he had so wished could have passed by sin without his own son suffering and dying now such reasoning overlooks two things it overlooks first of all the fact that God is a just God and that God could not possibly pass by sin he could not possibly overlook it you see <clears throat> sin is something that cannot be overlooked we talk about forgiveness of sin blessed be God's name there is forgiveness of sin but there is a very real sense in which sin cannot be forgiven as such sin must be punished it must be punished either in Christ or in hell God cannot pass by sin as if it was something that could be easily overlooked God is love but God is also just and God is holy and those who say that God because with God all things are possible could easily have passed by sin without the cross these people overlook the fact that God is a just God and God is strictly just in all his dealings it also overlooks the heinousness of sin itself you see we have little appreciation of how heinous a thing sin really is we sin fairly lightly certainly grievous sins we would be extremely careful about but we sin in small things so easily so flippantly but with God while there are some sins more heinous in his sight than others even the smallest of sins is something totally abhorrent totally ab obnoxious and something that is altogether repulsive to his own nature so God could not pass by sin God could not just act as if it never happened God must deal with it and the whole of scripture makes this so clear we're told even in the Old Testament though hand join in hand the wicked shall not go unpunished and you remember how Jesus himself tells us throughout the Gospels on more than one occasion the Son of Man must suffer the Son of Man must die and remember how this is made particularly clear when the time of his end drew to a close you remember how he was there in Gethsemane and how he prayed to the Father that if it were possible that this cup would pass from him well we find that at last Jesus is perfectly resigned he realizes that it was not possible that this cup should pass from him if it were possible God would have, would have permitted it but it were not possible the cup had to be drunk because of the sin of man if man was to be saved at all Christ must suffer <clears throat> and Christ must die the only means of salvation for man is the death of Christ or that man could keep the law perfectly and of course this was impossible as Paul tells us in the epistle to the Romans the law was weak through the flesh man because of what he is man because of what he has been since the fall was in a position where he could not possibly keep the law not even for a moment well God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
But that brings us to the third and to the final point. God's love with respect to the result. He gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, these words, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, they teach us several very important lessons. They teach us first of all that there are but two destinations for man. Man must either have eternal life or he must perish. You see there's no middle course, there's no middle place. The Roman Catholics would tell us that there is purgatory for a time for certain individuals. Scripture knows nothing of this. Scripture makes it clear that a man must either have eternal life or a man must perish. It is either the one or the other. And these words remind us also that to perish is not to be annihilated. It is not to be snuffed out as so many even who would claim to be within the Reformed faith would claim today. We couldn't certainly argue the doctrine of eternal punishment from this one verse, but throughout the New Testament, particularly throughout the Gospels, and particularly from the words of Christ himself, it is very clear that to perish is not to go out of existence, it's not to be snuffed out in a moment, but to perish is to be in a state of constant misery, separate from and yet in the presence of God, whose wrath must abide upon us forever. That is what it means to perish, to be in a state of constant misery, separate from, and yet in the presence of a God whose wrath must abide upon the sinner forever. But then these words remind us also that it's not sufficient that God gave his Son in itself, this is not sufficient for us, that God gave his Son. It's not even sufficient for us that we know this great truth. There must be a response to it on our own part. And that response to it must be one in faith. What does it mean that we must believe in him, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish? Well, it means, first of all, that we must hear about him and that we must understand the doctrines, the teachings of Scripture. We must hear about him. We must know about him. How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? We must hear about Christ in order to respond to Christ. That is the first thing that is brought out in these words. The second thing is that we must believe the historic record about Christ. We must believe that almost 2,000 years ago, this man, Christ Jesus, was born into this world. <clears throat> and that for over 30 years he lived, he was, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he spent the greater part of his life in Nazareth. And that at last he died on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the gates of Jerusalem. We must believe this. And we must believe that after three days in the tomb, he rose again. We must believe the historic record. But we must also go beyond this. We must trust personally 
on the merits of Christ's death and on the merits of his resurrection as the only basis for our own life and salvation. There has to be this personal element in our belief in Christ. We must trust personally on the basis of his death and resurrection as the only basis for our own life and salvation. We must believe that unless our life is bound up in his death, that we must perish forever. We must believe this and we must act upon this. We must believe this and we must act upon this. Well, as we draw to a conclusion, we must acknowledge that it's not within the power of flesh and blood to believe this by oneself. You remember what Peter said on one occasion to Jesus at, at Caesarea Philippi when he was asking whom do men say that I the son of man am and you remember after the various uh, conclusions of man were given to the Lord Peter himself spoke and he said thou art the Christ the son of the living God and you remember what Jesus says to Peter on the basis of that confession flesh he said and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. It was not within the power of Peter <clears throat> to believe this of himself. It was only the Father in heaven who could reveal this to him. But where does this lead us? Does this lead us to despair? Or does it lead us to fold in our hands and saying, oh well if that's the case, I'll just have to wait around and hope that one day the Father will reveal this to me. No, it doesn't mean this at all. It means rather that like Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus of old, we should cry out to God even now if we are still strangers to this Christ, to this gift that God has provided, that we should cry out to God for this faith that is his gift to give and that he is so willing to give. And if we do this, we can be sure of one thing, that he who spared not his own son, but, he, but who delivered him up for us all, that he with him shall freely give us all things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. May God grant that if there are any here, who have not as yet responded to this blessed and sweet invitation of his word, that they would, by his grace, be enabled to do so, while still in a position to do so, that they would close in with Christ and know him as the greatest gift that God has ever given to the children of men. May he bless his own word. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, we thank thee for that great and precious gift that thou hast given in the passion of thy Son, Christ Jesus. And we thank thee that we have been so privileged as to have heard of this gift. We thank thee that we have not been left in darkness as so many have been and are. But we pray that we would realize that with such a great privilege there goes inevitably a great responsibility to act upon the light that is ours. O oh Lord, we pray that if there are any here this evening who are still strangers to that great gift that thou hast given, to that great love that is thine for all who will close in with thee, 
We pray that they would not give thee rest until thou wilt answer them and until thou wilt bestow faith upon them. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst continue with us now. Be with us as we sing our parting psalm. And we pray that thou wouldst cleanse us from all our sin. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.